The reading for today is from Galatians 5:16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name's Brent. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the members here at the team at Christ City Church. And it's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to see you this morning. Um, welcome. We love that we are a church that gets to hear from God himself in his word. That we have his word revealed to us. We don't have to live our lives in mystery. We, we, we've learned what his will is for us in his word. So would you, would you pray with me as we begin that God would help us to hear his word, that his Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and respond to it. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning and we, uh, we just confess that we're needy. Father, I confess my weakness along with my brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, that, that we are small, finite creatures and, and we need you, the holy creator God, to work powerfully in our lives, to put sin to death, to, to raise us to new life in Christ. Oh Lord, we ask that you might establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever successfully ignored reality in your life. It's, it's almost tax time. And I think probably it's not just me who hopes that Revenue Canada disappears into some kind of fissure in the material of space and time between now and April 30th. We ignore taxes, but we ignore other things as well, don't we? I've tried to ignore chores, but the, the trash keeps stinking, reminding me that it's there. I've tried to ignore dentist appointments, tried to ignore tooth pain, and hopefully, hopefully it's nothing. It'll just go away and I won't have to deal with the dentist. Sorry if you're a dentist here this morning. I love you guys. So thankful for you. Really am, but it's, uh, it's a challenge sometimes. We are quite gifted as human beings at ignoring reality. But more than any of these things, I think there's a reality that you and I ignore all the time. The most important reality of all. 
The Bible tells us that reality is God on the one hand at work in a universe-encompassing plan of redemption. And then on the other hand, he, the Bible reveals that, that we have sin and the flesh and the devil waging war against God and his good purposes. And the Bible teaches us that God, through Jesus, that, that he's definitively won this conflict. That D-Day has happened, as Fred talked about last week. At the cross, Jesus has won. But that there's lots of fighting between D-Day and the full experience of victory. That right now our lives are filled and interspersed and involved in a conflict as we live our Christian lives. The authors of the Bible knew this well. They realized this conflict around them and they compared the Christian life to many different things, to a boxing match, to a marathon, a race that must be won and carried on in and pursued in and continued in until the end. Or of course, of course, maybe most famously of all, Jesus talked about the Christian life as picking up the crossbeam of a Roman torture instrument and walking in pursuit of Christ up that hill and dying. I think the reality we struggle with sitting here this morning, sitting on these chairs on March 31st, springtime outside off Broad Street in a theater, is that we don't succeed at any of these things mentioned in Scripture by sitting back in our lawn chairs or maybe back on Jericho Beach with a beverage in hand watching the sunset. That's not how we are going to succeed in these conflicts. I think there's a word for us this morning that I want to challenge us this morning with. And it's that we need to wake up. Christians here this morning, brothers, sister, even if you're an unbeliever here, someone who's not yet a Christian, we need to wake up to the reality of this context, of this conflict. The good news, though, for reality ignores like you and me is that Galatians 5, chapter 16 to 26, it confronts us in our slumber. And it teaches us how to live faithfully in a world that is part of this cosmic conflict. And Fred already preached one overview sermon on this subject, on this section, these verses. And now we're going to spend today and next week taking a deeper dive into what's written here. And we're going to learn how we're supposed to live what we have in Christ. Live the Christian freedom that we have through the gospel and live it faithfully in our lives in this conflict. And here's the cliff notes of what we'll look at this week and next week. Two things. Today, we're going to learn we have to crucify the flesh. And next week, we're going to learn that we have to walk by the Spirit. But first, let's start with today. Crucify the flesh. Let's look at this text. And that's good news for you guys, you, you who are you who are list takers and doers, you've been sitting back this whole series in Galatians, maybe feeling like, okay, I'm learning a lot about what Jesus has done. When can I start doing some things? Well, the good news is that today we can talk about a bit of a checklist. Today there is work to be done. We can make some progress in our Christian lives and start to get to work. But even here, we need to stop and think carefully first before we look at the list of what to do, to look carefully at who we are in Christ in the gospel. Who we are always determines what we are able to do. 
Who we are comes first. What we do comes second. So because of that, we're going to divide up this section as we look at crucifying the flesh into who we are and what we must do because of it. Just two points this morning, who we are and what we must do because of it. So who are we? Let's look at this first point. When the gospel, we are those who have been crucified with Jesus. Do you know that this morning? Objectively, once and for all, we have been joined with Jesus in faith. Look at the following passages of Scripture. Galatians 2, verse 20. This is, these are Paul's words about his experience of the gospel, but they're also true of us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Colossians 3, verse 3, says it this way. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Or Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The Bible teaches becoming a Christian is dying. Becoming a Christian is dying to self, dying to you. But we could ask, what does that really mean? We take that out and we, we try to live that out. What does that mean? Why do, I, why do I need this? Well, the Bible teaches that before we're joined to Jesus in his death, we have a problem. It says that we're slaves of sin. It says that we can't seem to get a handle on our sinful desires and our passions, our pursuit of ourself in ways that aren't productive and aren't good for us in our lives. Though it's true that we try lots of things to stop it. Right? We try to venture out on different forms of self-improvement in our lives all the time. We try stoicism. I'm just going to grin and bear it, try and let the world pass me by and, and just get through it by gritting my teeth. We try a pedal to the metal technique. You know, I'm just going to try a little harder, push a little harder, press a little deeper, and it will change me. We try various methods, but if we're honest, all, despite these efforts... Our desires, our sin, our self gets in the way of what we know of what we know is best, what we want to have happen in our lives. Why? Well, Paul says it's because of our sinful flesh. It's because of this thing Paul calls the flesh, these sinful desires inside of us. And what what is the flesh at root? Can we can we give it a little definition? I think a shorthand way to think about the flesh is just love of self. Self-love in place of the love that we were created to have for God and for others. Self-love in place of love for God and for others. And if your flesh is alive and kicking, it's really pulling you towards self in this irresistible way, even if you have all the best intentions in the world of going the other direction. It's like you're driving down the road, I think, to, to Vancouver, right? And you keep having this thought pop in your mind. I'm on, the, I'm, on, I'm on the number one, but maybe Calgary would be nice. Maybe Calgary would be great. Tanner's really loving this. 
But the only way that the only way that that can happen, the only way that I can stop my momentum and my direction to Vancouver, is to hit the brakes. But the thing is, despite how hard I try, I keep trying to apply my foot to the brake, and it's not doing anything. And I'm careening down the road to Vancouver, despite my best thoughts of going to Calgary, and I can't seem to stop it. The good news of the gospel is that when we place our trust in Jesus for our salvation, God, God takes our sinful flesh, and he applies the brakes. He brings our sinful flesh and he pins it up there on the cross with Jesus and he kills it. So that the brakes are applied and we can then turn around and head the other direction to Calgary. Some of you are just so concerned that I've compared Vancouver to the flesh and Calgary to to the spirit. It's not really the point of the illustration. (laughs) It's not true at all. But the good news of the gospel is that, is that God applies the brakes in this way and frees us from this careening down the road to Vancouver puts the brakes on, crucifies our flesh so that we're free to love God and love others. But it's not a gentle process, is it? To be a Christian is to die. Jesus doesn't just ask a little bit of you in the Christian life. Jesus asks for your whole life. He asks for you to die, for you to surrender you. For you to surrender all that you want and that you pursue, that you are chasing after, and to let that die. And to receive him as Lord and Savior. Paul, just a little further on in the book of Galatians, he says it this way in chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the gospel, we die to ourselves. In the gospel, our sinful self is broken. The power of self and sin is broken, and we're freed from the power of this world to love God and to love others. That's the glorious upside of dying to self, being free to love God and love others as we're created to. We're freed from self-love in the gospel to love God. That's the beauty of what's happening here. The reality is that always for us, In our lives, in the gospel, death precedes life. Do you know that? Death always precedes life. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, 24 to 25, look at what he said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death precedes life. So if you're somebody this morning, if, you, if you're here and you're thinking, I really, I see the way that my life is characterized by this inversion towards myself. It's characterized towards self-love, not towards this love of others that I esteem and think would be good. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for you to die to yourself, to be freed from that. And you need to die with Jesus. You need to believe in him and trust in him you need to be joined with him, with him in his death and in his resurrection life so you can be alive to live out what we're going to talk about for the rest of the morning. All that Galatians 5 speaks of and these instructions that he's going to give to us in a moment, they depend on us having us changed. 
They depend on us having been joined with Jesus in his death as a prerequisite for all the commands that Paul then gives us in the rest of the chapter. We must die. So have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you surrendered to him that that his spirit can be at work in you to bring you into life? Have you died with Christ this morning? If that's true of you, look with me at our second point. What we must do. Who we are is those who've been crucified with Christ. That has to come before what we do. And what we must do is to continue to crucify our flesh. To live out who we are as crucified with Jesus in daily crucifying our flesh in our actions. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul uses the language of crucifying the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. And it's the same idea that Paul just says really plainly in a straightforward way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, put to death what is earthly in you. So how shall we live? If we've been those who've been joined with Jesus in his death on the cross, how shall we live? We must live by fighting sin, by putting to death the deeds of the body inside of us. John Owen famously said this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Another theologian from the 16th century, John Calvin, he said it this way. He said, to obey the spirit and to oppose the flesh are two great objects which have been set before Christians and for the attainment of which they have been urged to make the most strenuous exertion. We must work. We must fight at these things. The truth is, that John Calvin's getting at is that we don't get by in our Christian lives by sitting on the couch. We don't get by in our Christian lives by sitting on the couch. We've been called to daily crucify our flesh, to pursue Christ in this way. But let's get concrete. If we're called to do that, what sort of things would Paul have in mind when he talks about the flesh? I mean, if we're going to crucify the flesh, if we're going to live our daily life strenuously exerting ourselves to put to death what is sin in our lives, then we need a target to aim at. What's the target? Where can we look? We'll look at Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, where Paul gives us a target. But as you look at this text, here's what I want to say to you. As you look at this text, don't just let these words and these phrases pass you by. I think it's easy, even Tanner mentioned it this morning, to, to read these familiar things and to have them just kind of glance off of us. But as you read them, as you look at these things, I want to ask you to ask God to show you by his spirit, what is it in you that he wants to expose? What is it in, in you that he wants to reveal by his spirit, by his word, and to bring to death in your life, to start to crucify actively in your life? Look at Galatians five nineteen to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty big 15-point list, isn't it? I think it can be hard to wrap our minds around it. And Paul even says that, that it's not just it's not an exhaustive list. It's, it's these things and things like these. So how can we attack this list? Well, Paul's helped us here. He's given us actually four categories in this list that can help us wrap our minds around it. So we're going to look at them a little bit more closely now. 
in each of these four categories that Paul has kind of grouped them in, and we'll examine them together. So here are the categories. The realm of the works of the flesh in sex, in worship, in community, and in drink. Those four. So first, let's take a, a look at what he says at the beginning. He says sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. The works of the flesh in the realm of sex. And the Anglican theologian John Stott, he comments on this passage. He says, these three words are sufficient to show that all sexual offenses, whether public or private, whether between the married or the unmarried, whether, quote, natural or unnatural, are to be classed as the works of the flesh. What he's saying is that together these three words rule out every kind of false pursuit of our lives sexually, uh, not in accordance with what God has called us to, not in accordance with his good purposes for us. And if, as some of you I'm sure are, a little tempted right now to just be like, oh man, this is just those Christians being all prudish again. You know, they have these funny lists. They really don't like sex. Um, That's not the case at all. God himself created passionate sex. It's his idea. He made it. But the thing is, he's created it to be enjoyed in a particular way. He's created sex to be enjoyed in a particular way between one man and one woman who are both married to one another. And all these things are important. Any any misuse of our sexuality, Paul says, is a work of the flesh. Any tendency toward, any pursuit of, any longing for or cherishing in our hearts of a sexuality or a sexual uh, living of our lives that deviates from what God's good purposes are for us. And they are good. They're, They're given to us for our good and for our benefit. The thing with the flesh is that it's love of self. The thing about sinning sexually is that this sexual sin in the same way is characterized by self-serving of oneself. We want to find satisfaction for ourselves when we misuse our body sexually. We want to invert the design of sex that God's given us and just serve me. Just satisfy me. And our culture praises this and encourages this and calls us to pursue it. But the Bible says it's wrong. Because God's design for sex, his good purposes for us as sexual creatures are not to use our sexuality selfishly. God's called us to use our sexuality selflessly, in love, for the other, in the context that he's given us to use it in. So this list, of course, is bigger than sex, though. And the next category of the flesh Paul brings to us are misuses of worship. The works of the flesh in regard to us in worship of our creator God. And Paul talks about two things here. He says, idolatry and sorcery are the things we're talking about. When we misuse our our flesh uh, in terms of our relationship with God. And though this might sound strange to you, these two words. When was the last time you talked about idolatry and sorcery in Vancouver in 2019? If, If that seems like a strange thing to bring up, when was the last time that you looked at the bulletin of your local coffee shop? Or you just looked at the, looked at the, the sign you know, on the side as you walk through the hallway and you have all the advertisements? When was the last time you read the Georgia Strait? 
And when was the last time you just perused the bulletins on the telephone pole down the main thoroughfares in, a city, thoroughfares in our city? Idolatry, wrong worship, wrong spirituality are all around us in Vancouver. We live in an incredibly spiritual city, spiritual place, a place that's trying to uh, find themselves spiritually. And ultimately, these two things refer to wrong worship that at root is a failure to obey God's command in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that we shall love the Lord your God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our might. That's what we've been called to in Christ. And the issue again here is that a wrong use of worship, works of the flesh in regard to worship, come back to self-love. Come back to inverting who we are as created beings made in God's image, made to worship him in a relationship of love with him, and turning inward on ourselves. The thing is that, honestly, the idolatry and the false worship all around us is pretty flattering. It's pretty you-focused. Have you thought about that? You, in false worship, get to be at the center. You get to have the divine spark within you. You get to be caught up in the fabric of the oneness of the spiritual existence, and you're the one that's enlightened into it. You get to be the prophet. You get to be the prophetess. These things are distortions of love created for God and bent into ourselves to worship and serve, not God, but ourselves, ultimately. For us here in Kitsilano, this is the, this is the air we breathe all around us. The thing is, all of us as human beings and all of these people around us in the city, even us before we knew Christ, we're looking at, for ways to, to find transcendence. We're seeking spirituality. We're seeking for fulfillment in a spiritual way. We're looking for what's magical and mystical, and we pursue it through a wide variety of things that are against Scripture. Whether it's, I don't know, neo-pagan solstice celebrations or something else. But the Bible, the Bible warns us about this for a reason. Because false worship isn't going to be what satisfies us. God's called us away from that to worship Him, to love Him, to be freed to know His goodness, to be freed from ourselves, to love the God we are made for. That's the category number two of false worship. But next, Paul turns attention to the biggest category on his list of works of the flesh. And, and these things here are, so we've, we looked at the, the sex, we've looked at the wrong worship uh, in terms of our, uh, our works of our flesh, in terms of a relationship with God. Um, but now we're going to look at this list of sins of the flesh in our community. And this is actually the biggest part of the list. Paul's really focusing in and zeroing in on how we can misuse the works of our flesh in our lives with one another. So look at this with me in Galatians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, 20 to 21. Paul writes, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. You know, I, I'm ashamed to say how often I've allowed these types of sins to flourish in my life. I don't know if that's true for you as well. The thing about, about me is that I can be so blind to even identify them in my life. I think it's probably true for you too. We're profoundly skilled at justifying our envy of justifying our nitpicking and our judgments 
and our works of the flesh that turn us inward to self-love instead of to seek the good of those around us and to justify us in the process. When we live in division and enmity and envy and jealousy, though, we need to realize something. You're not looking to build up anybody. You're looking to satisfy yourself. You're looking to satisfy and justify your pride. But you know what happens, I think, is that when we look at these lists, we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we look at the list of these vices, the works of the flesh, I think that we, like, we, our eyes are drawn to the big sins, you know, and we tend to gloss over what we call the little sins. We tend to gloss over these sins in the community. We think, what's the big deal with a little bit of envy in my life? What's the big deal with a little bit of jealousy? I mean, how wrong can it be? Come on, Brent, what's, going to, what's really going to happen if I tolerate these things? Well, if tolerated, they will wage war against what is of God's spirit in your life and in this church. Usually, churches aren't destroyed from the outside. Churches tend to be destroyed from the inside as we allow the works of the flesh to take root in our own lives, to stir up dissension and rivalries and bitternesses in our community, and then we bite and devour one another and are consumed by each other, as Paul warns in verse 15 of chapter 5. These are sins of the flesh. The last category, though, that Paul gives us is this list that has to do with sins of the flesh in terms of drink, and drunkenness and orgies. And, and you might think, okay, wait a second, he's mischaracterized orgies. That doesn't belong here in the drinking list. It belongs somewhere else, the sex list. The thing is, this word that Paul uses, it's actually exactly right. It's a drinking sin. It's not so much an orgy that you might have in mind, more than a riotous and out-of-control frat party. Think of a rager, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying you're at this thing, and you're, you're just living fully into, into the flesh, into the self. You know that the Bible calls you to this five, Ephesians 5.18, not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit. But what this does, what these sins do, is they cause you to live into the self. To be freed from inhibitions to pursue self and not others. So there's these four categories we've been looking at. But maybe you're wondering, as you look at all these categories, all these inversions of of sin from uh, works of the flesh that turn us away from love of God towards love of self, Maybe you're wondering, what's the big deal, Brant? I'm still wondering what the big deal is. I have these, these things, I'm looking at them all, and I'm wondering, come on, is it, is it, does it even matter? Why are you making such a big point out of these things? Well, I think we should ask, where does a life that pursues the flesh actually end up in our lives? Where does that lead us? And I think we see two things happen. I think, number one, just think about it logically. If I pursue myself rather than a life of love for God and love for others, that's going to ruin my relationships. And then as I do that, and as you do that, and you do that, and you do that, and you do that, it's going to wreck our community, right? It's going to tear apart our community rather than bring it together to flourish. So that's, that's on one hand. But on the other hand, I think, and even more importantly, it's this. We should fear this far more deeply. Look at verse 21. The end of these things is this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
God will not be mocked. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. That's true. But if we have true faith in Jesus, it's going to show itself and work itself out in our lives by true works of righteousness. Those who persist in entertaining their flesh, sitting back in the couch, as it were, in their Christian lives, cultivating their flesh, cultivating their love of self rather than the love of God and others that they were created for, it's not going to reap you God's reward. It's going to reap you God's judgment. Romans 8, 13 just says it very simply. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the promise of Scripture. There's a dire warning here to spur us on. There's grace for us in Christ. We're not saved by our works, but our works will, our, our faith in Christ will bear fruit. It will work. These things matter profoundly. I hope you see that. And the question left for us, though, I think right now is, okay, if that's the case, then how am I going to fight these things? How can I then get to work and start to attack them? Well, this way. We fight the flesh by picking up our, our sins, dragging them up the hill behind us, fixing them to the cross where we have died with Christ, and pounding the nail in and keeping that sin there until it's dead. This is a daily and a lifelong discipline of fighting sin. The Scottish author and theologian John Brown writes, Crucifixion produced death not suddenly, but gradually. He says, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying it, that is the flesh, while here below. But they have fixed it to the cross, and they are determined to keep it there until it expire. I love that. To fight it diligently, to keep it there till it expires. We are in an ongoing war, brothers and sisters. This is a battle. And we fight the flesh by actively doing whatever it takes to kill it in our lives. We fight the flesh by confronting the self, confronting our pride, and bringing it to Jesus and submitting it 100% to his rule and his authority in our lives. We, cut it by, we, we fight it by cutting it off, but not giving any opportunity, not entertaining it in our hearts or in our actions in our lives. So let's just consider how this works when it's applied to these four realms. Well, first we, we fight our flesh in the realm of sex this way. And I think the best way to fight our struggle with sexual sin is to drag it into the open, to drag it into the light. Your sin wants to be hidden. Your sin wants to avoid any truth or any light shining on it. But we need, to, we need to treat it like the vampire that it is and drag it into the light and watch it shrivel and die. Dragging sin into the light is one of the most powerful ways to grow in dying with Christ because when we do this, we're choosing not to live in this false narrative that I have before all of you. This false, prideful narrative of who I am. And instead, we're confronting who we really are and exposing it. Living only in the hope of the gospel. Showing that, yes, I have sin in me. Here it is. Would you hold me accountable? Would you care for me? Would you help me grow? We're choosing to kill pride in order to walk with Jesus. 
You know, if you're thinking, Brent, this is really hard, I can't imagine the shame of showing my sexual sin. I've done this. In, in my battle, in my own life with lust, years ago, I, I took my issues and I said to my elders in my church, I said, hey, can we have a meeting? Can we talk? I, I want to talk to you. I want to expose this thing that's in my heart. And I was at a small church, small country family church. So the elders were my father-in-law, my dad, several of the leaders in our community that had basically raised their children next to me. I didn't leave that meeting with my pride intact. But I left that meeting with my sin dealt a mortal blow. That I think is really the reason that God has allowed some grace in my life to put this sin to death. You know, if this is you this morning, if you're somebody who's in the middle of this battle, I want to talk to you about it. I want to talk to you about it. So does Fred, so do the elders here. But you need to seek someone out in your life to talk to, to expose it to. You're not going to win this battle or any of these battles by doing it by yourself, by hiding in the dark. Let's do it together. And then the second arena of idolatry, this realm of the flesh where we misuse our, our worship, the best way to kill our sin is by submitting absolutely to God in his word, the Bible. The nail goes in when you do the thing here that's abhorrent to the flesh. And you know what's abhorrent to the flesh? What's abhorrent to the flesh is you throwing up your hands in submission to Jesus and letting go of all of your secondary paths to spiritual fulfillment that you have and that you entertain. And saying, no, Jesus, I submit to you. I submit to your word. I allow you to be the Lord and master of my life 100%. I'm living under your word and under the Bible. The gospel claims not a little bit of authority in your life. It claims total authority in your life. So repent. Cut those things out of your life. Whether that's a book, whether it's classes, whether it's mentors that you talk to that are going to be leading you to a different way of spiritual fulfillment, leave those things behind and cling to Jesus through his word, through the church. Drag yourself up that hill. Submit to him only on his terms. And the third in the arena of community, the nail goes in again when we do the thing that's abhorrent to our flesh. You know what's abhorrent to our flesh when we have sins in the community? It's kind of obvious. It's going to that person that you have something against and confessing your sin to them. Asking their forgiveness. Getting on your knees and praying for those people. Seeking them out in love. How can I care for them? How can I serve them in love instead of preserve me in my flesh? And my self-love. This is hard. The nail goes in when you do the thing that's abhorrent to the flesh. But when you do this, that sin is crucified. You bring it up to that cross. You pin it to the cross again. And it dies a little more. So you're free to love them as you're created to. I don't know if I need to remind you, but sometimes we do this thing with these community sins where, where we feel justified in them because we forget what's happened to us in the gospel. We forget that the forgiveness that God has brought to me is so great and so good 
I am under obligation to forgive everyone who might have any small offense against me. If you're a Christian here this morning, there isn't a person on earth that you rightly deserve to be bittered towards and bitter towards and to be filled with hate towards, to withhold forgiveness from. Because God in the gospel has crossed the chasm of eternity on high to earth to deal with your sin. How can you withhold your forgiveness from others in judgment? Last in the realm of this, this works of the flesh and partying and drinking, I think the way that we kill these deeds of the flesh is just to stop living for ourselves. If your weekend plans are consumed with how can I enjoy the pleasures of this life in this way, in this party, in this routine, we need to die to that. We need to fix the nail to that and look for ways to serve others in love instead. The thing is, nobody ever goes to a rager eager to figure out how to serve one another in love. That's not why you go. That's not, that's not what your purpose is there. You need to drive the nail into the flesh here by doing what's abhorrent to your flesh. And that's choosing not your own selfish pursuit in the moment, but practicing moderation and self-control for the good of others. So we're called to in Christ. We should say, though, in all of these areas, I want to emphasize this. It's not like we can do this alone. You can't do this by yourself in any of these areas or in any of the things that Paul left unsaid. If we're to fight the flesh, we need to do that in community with one another. I need to join shoulders with you. You need to join shoulders with me. Join arms with me so that we can together put to death the deeds of the body. We're here as a community. I ask you to come closer, press in closer, speak into one another's lives as we together fight to put to death the works of the flesh. Your reality this morning is that you've been crucified with Christ. That's the reality for those who are Christians. The power of sin has been broken so you can fight actively now to continue to carry your sin up that hill and pin it to that cross. So as you bring all this together to a close, I just want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that, that although we struggle against it, especially on Monday morning, right, when you're only halfway through your first cup of coffee, although we struggle with it, to sit idly by in our Christian lives is to be carried away to destruction. To live faithfully is to fight. Did you hear that this morning? To live faithfully as a Christian is to fight. And the good news for us is that through faith in Christ, we can be joined with him in his death so the power of, our, of sin in our lives is broken. We can be freed to know him and to love him and to love others. That's the good news, hope that we have in Jesus. But for the rest of our lives, we must die daily, picking up our cross and following Jesus. To follow Jesus, I think, is just to be merciless, pitiless towards our flesh. We can't excuse these things. We have to crucify them. John Stott says this about the process of crucifixion in our lives. He, he talks about it this way. He says, if we crucified the flesh, and we have in Christ, then we must do this. We must leave it there to die. We must renew every day this attitude towards sin of ruthless and uncompromising rejection. Or in the language of Jesus, as Luke records it, every Christian must take up their cross daily in pursuit of Christ. 
We've been called on a path of a long and slow death to ourselves. And I know this has been a bit heavy this morning, but there's joy here. Because there's something incredibly sweet to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, to have him reveal sin in our lives, and to fight to put that sin to death. Because as we do that, you know what happens? We draw closer to God in Christ. His life increases in us in place of our pursuit of ourselves. And that's glorious. That's what you were created for. To know God, to love God, to be loved by him fully. Your sin is an obstacle there. Fight to put it to death. To walk fully in the grace and the love that you have already through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, help us to embrace this. Help us to, to just embrace the reality of, of who we are in you. That we have been crucified in you, in Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause that truth to go down deeply into our hearts so that when we wake up tomorrow morning, we don't live our lives with apathy, but that we fight. That we fight to put to death what is sinful and earthly in us. That we fight to walk by your Holy Spirit in newness of life. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.